So Dr. Battle is the, uh, the uh, I think the official title is Professor of, of Theology and New Testament at Western Reformed Seminary. He is the founding president of uh, the seminary and continues to teach as one of our um, faculty members there. He's a board member of the seminary. And uh, it's uh, great to be able to have him spend the day teaching us from the word. Dr. Battle, you're all yours. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to have Brother Tidu taking a position at the seminary of the president now. And uh, it's a real joy. I think just like you, kid, you uh, parents, when you see your children excel, you know, and, and uh, run the football farther than you ever did. It's, uh, it's great to see that, and the Lord's blessed Brother Titu and blessing the seminary, and we're looking forward, God willing, to a big move coming up shortly to our new building, and we're all excited about that. Well, I brought a couple things here. I brought this so you can see what I'm talking about, and then I also brought this so I can see what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, today I thought it would be fun for us to look at uh, the way that God uses historical events for his purposes. And as you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. Uh, many of you have been following the, the uh, terrible events in South Africa and uh, the, the tremendous uh, dangers there and uh, the various leaders that have come and gone. Uh, the former president of that country inspiring all these riots and uh, seeking to impose a communist dictatorship on that country uh, and the dangers involved for the people of God. We need to remember them in prayer. But a lot of times you, you see these things and you think, wow, things are out of hand. You know. And, uh, but it's comforting to know that when you look back in history, you see Things happened then also that were equally upsetting and terrible and uh, resulting in, in death and mayhem for thousands of people. And great leaders have risen up and then been cut down. And God has a purpose in all of this, that he is furthering his own cause and helping his own people through the course of history. And I thought it would be fun for us today to look at this one example of a very famous historical, uh, what do you want to call him, conqueror, dictator. Uh, he's, he goes by many titles. He's been admired by many and cursed by many, but he, he had a tremendous impact on the world. But as far as we're concerned, Alexander the Great shows to us the power of God to control the events of history for his purposes. And I'd like for us to see how Alexander fulfilled the prophecies that God had already placed in his word and also prepared the way for the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles to come and spread the gospel throughout the world. And of course, Alexander had no idea about those things. But as we look back, we see that was his main significance. So we're going to be looking at how he fulfilled prophecy, how he conquered a great empire and prepared for the Greek New Testament. 
And first of all, we're going to look at how he fulfilled prophecy. Now, Alexander lived about a little bit prior to 300 B.C. And I'm going to say B.C. If you uh, watch modern television, they'll say B.C.E. Because they don't like to mention Christ as any important divider of history. So they say B.C.E., before the common era. But uh, I think before Christ is nice. We'll, We'll stick with that. It's worked pretty well for over a thousand years. So about 300 B.C. is when we date Alexander, a little bit prior to that. But many years before Alexander was born, there were prophecies written in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that are about him in particular. And these occur in two books of the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and in Daniel. And those were written about 200 years before Alexander came. So in Ezekiel 36 and in Daniel 2, 7, 8, 10, and 11, we have prophecies about Alexander. We'll start with Ezekiel here. Ezekiel 26 says this, This is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Tyre. Now what is Tyre? That's the British spelling for a wheel, right? (laughs) But uh, (laughs) It's... uh, what is Tyre? Who knows? The city? And yes, where is it? Well, it's city in Lebanon. In Lebanon, right. And it's on the coast, uh, just north of Israel. And uh, it's, it's a very famous city throughout history. And so here's a prophecy against that city. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. And we know the Babylonians conquered Tyre, and then later... Alexander and the Greeks conquered Tyre. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fish nets. For I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Uh, In these riots we're observing that are going on now, Vast stretches of cities in South Africa are just utterly destroyed, burning rubble. And uh, what this prophecy predicts is an even more extreme destruction than that. They'll actually be scraped away. And the interesting thing about this is that this is exactly what Alexander the Great did to the city of Tyre. When he came south on his conquests, Tyre resisted him. So he and his army surrounded the city on that coast and eventually conquered it. Tyre was difficult to conquer because it was in two sections. There was the coast, so there was the city right on the coast, and then a half mile away was an island in the Mediterranean that the city also occupied. So you had, the city had two parts, had the, the coastal part and this island. And whenever they came under attack, they would simply retreat to the island with their boats. They'd go to the island, and the army on land could not attack them. And then, if they tried to besiege them in some way, the people on the island were able simply to send their ships out and get supplies and reinforcements or whatever they needed, and they could not be conquered 
because the army hadn't, could not get access to that island. If they tried to make their boats and go out, they could fight against them and protect their island. So that way, the city of Tyre seemed impregnable. But when Alexander came, he had that, he faced that situation. They were all, they had all escaped, you might say, and gone to that island half mile away from the, from the coast. They could see them there laughing, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, like that. And uh, uh, so Alexander, though, he said, we're going we're, we're gonna to get them with our army. So his strategy was simply, a very brutal strategy, was simply that we're going to clear away all the rocks, all the rubble, everything, and dirt and dump it into the sea, and it wasn't very deep. They were able to dump, dump it in the sea and actually make a causeway from the mainland out to the island where the people were. And to do this, he started using his soldiers, but then he used captive uh, peoples as slaves, and they would take you know wheelbarrows or wagons, whatever, and dump stuff into the water and go back and get more and dump it in and get more and dump it in and then gradually work toward the island. And as uh, these people were approaching, uh, the people on the island could try to kill the people that were doing this, but that was their own countrymen. You know. And uh, it was a, a brutal thing to do, but he actually succeeded. And even today, that little map on the bottom right there shows you the modern outline. Even today, there is... Uh, as a result of what Alexander did, a peninsula now that goes out there instead of just having an island. So when they completed that causeway, the army was able to charge across and completely destroy the city of Tyre. And so that prophecy of Ezekiel was literally fulfilled because that prophecy had said, I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock and you'll be able to spread fishnets where the city used to be. And that's, there's a photograph of the modern uh, location. And it's desolate. There's the city of Tyre nearby, but the ancient city is desolate. And uh, you read a prophecy like that, and you think, well, maybe that's figurative language. But in this case, it's extremely literal language. But Alexander was fulfilling that prophecy, even though he probably had no idea that that had been written. In the book of Daniel, there are several prophecies about Alexander. In chapter 2, you have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he dreamed of that great statue that represented the empires that would rule over the world. And he was the head of gold. And does anybody remember that statue? What came after the gold? The shoulders and arms of silver. Then the chest and loins of bronze. And then the legs of iron and the feet, iron mixed with clay. Right, so that's going through the various empires that ruled over God's people. And uh, when you get to the bronze section of that statue, that represented the kingdom of the Greeks, the third kingdom that would rule over the whole earth. So here's uh, some, there have been a lot of, artistic representations of that statue, and you can see the bronze section in the center there, representing the kingdom of Greece, introduced by Alexander. Here's a more helpful picture of it on the right. And uh, I think uh, as, you, as you look at that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and then Media and Persia, 
and then Greece, and then the Romans being the iron. In Daniel 7, there's a similar uh, amazing prophecy that Daniel was given, seeing various beasts representing those very same empires. And you had the, the four beasts, and the one that represented Greek or the Greeks was a leopard. It says a leopard had four wings like that of a bird. This beast had four heads. It was given authority to rule. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. So uh, here's an artist's rendition of that beast representing the kingdom of the Greeks. And again, you'll notice the four heads is a reference to the four divisions of the Greek empire when Alexander died. And they continued to rule over the people of God. A leopard is a rather, uh, as you know, is a, is a predator, uh, hunts its prey, and it's a fast runner, and uh, it'll leap out of a tree on you or chase after you. And then if it has wings, it can go even faster. And uh, that perhaps is a reference to the fact that Alexander was such a rapid conqueror, moving so quickly through so many thousands of miles, conquering as he went. In Daniel chapter 8, there is another prophecy uh, that involves the Greek empire of Alexander. Here we have two animals, a ram and a goat. And the ram represented the Persian empire, and then the goat was the Greek empire. And it says this goat had a prominent horn between his eyes. And uh, sort of like uh, Olaf, is that his name? With his carrot? I, I, I think you know what I'm talking about. But you know, if you just take that carrot and stick it up here, that's sort of what the picture would be. Uh, that represented its first king. So it says this goat came and charged at and killed the ram, the ram of two horns, attacked him furiously, striking the ram, shattering his two horns, the two horns of Media and Persia, and knocked him to the ground and trampled upon him. And there's an artist rendition of this particular scene as the goat with the prominent horn attacks the ram, uh, the Persians being attacked by the Greeks under Alexander. It goes on to say the goat became very great, and at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. So here, Alexander is just in the height of his power, and then bang, he's, he's knocked off. He's gone. Broken. And uh, the four horns come out in its place, and that represents the four divisions of his kingdom, uh, four generals that served under him, dividing up his kingdom after his death. There he is without his horn. And uh, <laughs> that's the Greek empire after Alexander. <laughs> and you'll notice the four small horns there. And uh, matter of fact, uh, in this picture, there's a little horn growing out of one of those big horns, which uh, is predicting one of the future kings that came out of one of the lines, out of the line of Seleucus. And finally, in Daniel chapter 10 and 11, we see it, it, near the end of his life, the uh, 
Daniel having visions from God. And in one case, an angel came to him and said, I have to return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. This is a very interesting statement by the angel. He mentions Michael as an angel who fights for the people of God, but angels fight on a different level than we do. And so the angel is here involved in some heavenly angelic warfare against evil forces, evil spiritual forces. And the Bible presents the the idolatrous kingdoms of the world as actually serving demons or serving evil angels under Satan. And when we look at history, we see the, the humans fighting each other. But Daniel here is given a glimpse of what's going on above the humans. It's sort of like the story of Elisha with the angels, you know, circling around the city, protecting that nobody could see, but they were there. And I think uh, when, we, when we think of the various kingdoms of the earth, we realize that they are expressions of what's going on spiritually. And the decisions that are made by human rulers are actually decisions where they're influenced either for good or for evil, uh, by God or by Satan. And these empires are all idolatrous, godless empires, and they are following the clues given to them, the leading given to them by Satan. And we recognize, of course, that God is sovereign over all events, and even over Satan himself. And so the, the things that Satan can do, that he wants to do, or that he's able to do, uh, are actually things that God has determined should be done for God's own purposes. And uh, so Satan, if one of Satan's plans agrees with this purpose of God, God allows Satan to carry that out. But if it goes against what God has planned, then God frustrates that plan of Satan and uh, keeps that control over him. But the picture we see here is that the prince of Greece was not Alexander, but it was some angelic evil power that was leading Alexander, and God's angels are fighting in our behalf in these cases. So uh, there's more involved than what we know. I think when we get the glory, we can look back and see, as we see events from God's perspective, a lot of things that we didn't realize. He mentions also here in uh, Daniel 11 that uh, there will be a series of kings in Persia and then he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece that's uh, Xerxes did, the, uh, did this a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases and that's Alexander and when he has finished his empire will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven and given to others so all of these prophecies involving Alexander 200 years prior to his life. Now, as, as it worked out in history, God ordained things and raised up this young man. So let's look now at how God gave to Alexander this great empire in his providence. 
The Greeks were a small nation. Actually, they weren't a, a nation. They were several little city-states that were very loosely connected and often fighting each other. But when the Persians attacked them from the east, they banded together sufficiently to defend themselves uh, against the Persians. And that involved the famous uh, Spartan soldiers, 300. It also were, uh, some of you men may have caps that say, come and take it. Have that? Uh, Malone Labe, do you have that on your hats, anybody? Okay, that's having come, take it. That's what the Spartans said to the Persians. The Persians said, give us your weapons, and that's how they responded. Come and get them. And uh, anyway, that's often seen today as sort of a rallying cry for people defending themselves. But uh, uh, the Spartans hardly ever got along with the people of Athens, but for this particular war, they did, because they were in it together. And the, Ath the Athenians had a tremendous navy, and the Spartans were really good on land, and the sort of combining their forces, they were able to hold back this huge attack of approximately, it's estimated, approximately a million uh, men involved in attacking Greece in the navy and in the army and then their supports and all that uh, against this very small, relatively small population in Greece. But they did it, and uh, Xerxes was defeated in Greece and had to retreat back to his borders in Turkey, a little bit back from the coast in Turkey, and uh, the Greeks for a while then had their independence again. A giant army invaded, they were driven out. Okay, now next. Greece was divided into various districts and the northern part of Greece was the uh, kingdom of Macedonia. Macedonians and the ruler of Macedonians was Philip of Macedon. He was a great war leader. Uh, he was able to subdue the other parts of Greece under his authority, but there was a lot of rebellion, and it was sort of, uh, for him, a full-time job just trying to keep his influence throughout Greece. But then he was assassinated, and his young son, Alexander, became king in his place. Alexander was trained as a, a Greek scholar. He loved uh, the Greek literature. He loved philosophy. Actually, his private tutor was Aristotle. Uh, you've, most of you have watched that movie, uh, Princess Bride, I think. One of my favorite lines, you know. Let's see, how's it go? <laughs> have you heard of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, yes, morons. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Anyway, morons. If I had a hat, maybe it'd say morons. But uh, Aristotle was a, a great intellect, and uh, he tutored Alexander. So Alexander was only 20. He wasn't expecting to have all of a sudden the authority of government thrust upon him, but that's what happened. And uh, uh, after the murder of his father, he became king at the age of 20, of course, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories. Some thought that maybe Alexander himself you know, arranged for this. Uh, so there's quite a bit of controversy about that. Well, this map shows uh, the, the kingdom of Macedonia, which is the orange part there. In the, you can see there Macedon and then the other Greek states uh, that Philip was trying to control. And then off to the east, you see the purple area, or the lap, whatever the color that is, uh, 
that's the Persians. Persians controlled all that all the way to the east. So there was this threat of the Persians always against them. But during these years, the Persian emperors had become weaker and more corrupt and interested in their own pleasures. And so the, the strength of that empire, while it looked impressive on the map, was not as great as it had been in, in the past. It was sort of uh, what the Chinese would call a paper tiger at, at this point. So Alexander uh, assumed power, and the first thing he wanted to do was to consolidate the, the Greek state behind himself. Now down a little bit to the south of Macedonia is the city of Thebes, and that city revolted against Alexander. He went to the city of Thebes and uh, just utterly destroyed that city. He killed many of the people, and then the rest he sold as slaves. And this was never done to fellow Greeks, but he did it. And it put fear and dread of him throughout the Greek-speaking people there. And ever after that, no one dared to rebel against him in the country of Greece itself. He then took a small army of Macedonians to go and attack the Persians in modern-day Turkey. Um, he also took scientists with him, historians and others, just to make the trip more profitable and more uh, useful and uh, to expand studies that he was interested in. It's interesting, uh, it reminds me of Napoleon. Napoleon did that when he went to Egypt, one of his conquests, he did the same thing. They crossed the Dardanelles, that's the small body of water there between Greece and Turkey, and came to the city of Troy, the same city that you read about in the Iliad. Uh, they came to the city of Troy and defeated that city right up in the corner of Turkey. That's the same area where Paul was when the apostle Paul was in Troas. And Troas is related to the ancient city of Troy and uh, where he saw the, the, the uh, vision of the man of Macedonia. So in Paul's case, Paul went to Macedonia from Troy to bring the gospel. But 300 years earlier, Alexander came from Macedonia to Troy to conquer it. So one came conquering military, the other one came conquering with the gospel. And it's, uh, which, which had the most lasting significance? Well, I think we know the answer to that. So here's just a, a brief, extremely brief survey of Alexander's conquering campaign. It took him about 10 years to do this with his little army. Uh, but he started up in the, uh, where it says, uh, well, in the dark green area there in Greece, sailed across to Troy. Now, I don't have a pointer with me, but uh, I think you can sort of follow. Uh, can you all see the city of Troy? I don't know if you can read that or not. Okay, I guess you can sort of read it. Notice the word battle there up on the right? Yeah. Those are all places where I'm... No, that's not true. Uh, that's where he fought a major war or major battle. So in, uh, as soon as he crossed over to Troy and started marching into the mainland, uh, the Persians came up to confront him. And at that point, the emperor of Persia was Darius III, and Darius himself was not present at this battle, but he, his large army was under his various generals, and it seemed like it would be an easy 
victory for them. They vastly outnumbered the Greeks, but surprisingly, the Greeks defeated them. Uh, let's see, I think I'll look ahead here. There's, there's a statue of Alexander with his horse in Scotland. Brother Bond, if you've observed that statue there, you always wonder why they put a statue of Alexander up in Edinburgh, but there it is. Uh, these are reenactors, uh, re I guess you call them, showing the various kinds of armor. Uh, on the left is a lightly armored uh, Greek soldier, and on the, in the center there, a more heavily armored one, uh, the hoplites. These were called hoplite soldiers, and there is a picture in a museum of some of their armor from uh, well, a couple thousand years ago now, but it's still, still there. Okay, let's go back here. So uh, from, from that initial victory, uh, the army sort of melted away, and Alexander proceeded to march down the coast of Turkey and then across the southern part of Turkey, making a loop through the middle. And then he got to the corner uh, where, uh, uh, at the uh, east side of Turkey, where it meets the corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see there, there's a, a star at the city of Issus, or the place of Issus. And there was a second great battle fought there. And Darius was present at that battle. And again, the Greeks defeated the much larger army of the Persians. So Darius ran away, and uh, Alexander continued his march south. He marched south along the coast there of Palestine. Uh, there you see the city of Tyre has a star on it. And that's what we were talking about earlier. Then he went on down into Egypt. And in Egypt, they were so scared of him that they surrendered very quickly and uh, made him the pharaoh. So he became the pharaoh of Egypt. And uh, his, his generals, after uh, General Ptolemy, after Alexander died, uh, declared himself the pharaoh of, of Egypt. And the pharaohs of Egypt continued on in his family. So he had Greek pharaohs in Egypt. And uh, uh, Egyptians, I don't know what they thought about that. Of course, uh, anyway, who's the last pharaoh of the last? Well, not that, I guess, I guess it, I don't know if she was pharaoh or not. The most famous person in that line, the last one. Cleopatra. Right, Cleopatra. Um, anyway, so he went through Egypt, and then he came back again, came up toward uh, Gaza, and then over into Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then after he went through that area, he went to the east. And you can see him moving to the east now, and then he got to where it says Assyria. And just below that, and I always get the pronunciation wrong on this, Guagam Guagamela, Guagamela, the uh, uh, great battle, or that was his third great battle against the Persians. And again, Darius tried to run away, and he did, but then his servants killed him later and brought his head to Alexander. Uh, after defeating the Persians there, he was the great power in the whole Persian Empire after that, uh, Alexander. And so he continued marching, uh, taking various cities that resisted him. Others opened their gates to him. He went all the way to the east on that more northern route 
up where it says Parthia, and he got to, see, can you see over on the right-hand side where it says Bactria? Uh, he, when he got there, he became more and more of an Eastern, uh, what, what do you want to say, uh, sultan or something, you know, uh, uh, like a, a despot, and he, he adopted the style of clothing of the Eastern monarchs, uh, no longer a Greek believing in democracy and that sort of thing, uh, and he made all his soldiers lie on the ground in front of him like the despots did in that area. And then he married Roxana, who was a princess of Bactria. And uh, so Alexander and Roxana uh, were married, and they went traveled together after that, and they did have a little son. And then he went all the way down to where it says Hindu Kush, to the river there. And what happened there? The soldiers said, that's enough, I want to go home. Uh, and they rebelled against going further. He wanted to just keep going forever. Uh, and so they forced him to return to the west. Uh, so he led them down south, and then they traveled west along a terrible desert route that killed a high percentage of his soldiers by thirst and disease. And then uh, when they got to Arabia, he himself became ill. And uh, then in the city of Babylon, uh, he died in, in a young age from his diseases and dissipation. Uh, he was able to be so successful because of the way he fought, which was totally new and different. The Persians had never seen anything like it. Uh, the phalanx formation was uh, a tightly blocked pack of men with long pikes, shields, and swords. And they would march together like a block. And if you attacked them with horses or with chariots, they, would, they had these long pikes, and they would put them down, and the horses would skewer themselves on these pikes. And uh, they were afraid of that, so the horses would veer off. Uh, and then as they rode past, the soldiers were able to kill them that way. And... Uh, uh, it just decimated these cavalry forces of the Persians. And then the infantry forces of the Persians were not nearly as disciplined, and they were more spread out, and were easy pickings, you might say, for these blocks, these phalanx blocks of soldiers. Here's an artist's rendition of them. You can see the long pikes and how they use them. Okay. Okay, I wanted to mention when Alexander went through the city of Jerusalem, he didn't fight there, but as he passed through, there's a story that the Jews tell, which is recorded in Josephus. And we don't know for sure if it's true or not, but it's a great story. It says that the high priest had a dream that Alexander was coming and that he fulfilled these prophecies that we saw in Ezekiel and in Daniel, and uh, that uh, Alexander was going to make a terrible you know, demand, make terrible demands upon the city of Jerusalem because they didn't help him on his way south. So uh, as he was coming back up north again, he was just going to let them know who was boss here. But then he had a dream also that, uh, that uh, these were the people of God and they had a message for him from their scriptures. And so the story is that the high priest went out of Jerusalem to meet Alexander as he came and he showed him the scrolls of the scriptures where he was predicted 
And uh, Alexander was so happy about that that he gave the city many blessings instead of harsh terms. And uh, this is one artist's rendition of it, a famous painting of the high priest showing young Alexander here the passages in the Bible where he fulfilled the prophecies. Of course, we know that this is not accurate because it's not scrolls, but it's like a, like a book, you know, with pages. And uh, they didn't have that kind of book among the Jews in those days. But anyhow, it's a neat picture anyway. Also, that temple looks rather elegant, don't you think, for, you know, kind of fictitious, I would say. But the point is well made. <laughs> so I'm going to just, this is some of the details I've just talked to you about, how uh, he was able to walk through basically all these areas, and then uh, Mary uh, Roxana, there's a, a mural showing uh, the two of them together. Then the army refusing. Uh, here's a coin from that period of Alexander. And how he became a tyrant. Heavy drinking had a lot to do with his death. Um, and so there he is on his deathbed, dying of a fever. His infant son was murdered as soon as, he, as Alexander died because the generals did not want any competition uh, to who would rule after him. So the the uh, generals divided up his kingdom, and the two families that are mentioned in Scripture that uh, were most significant were the Ptolemies, who ruled Egypt, and then the Seleucids, who ruled in Syria. And both of those families ruled over the Jews at different times, and they fought over the Jewish territory. Sometimes the, from the north, the Syrians would come down. Sometimes from the south, the Egyptians would come up, and they were constantly being attacked one way or the other, through the next 200 years after, after Alexander died. Those are the areas that the various generals controlled at his death. So finally, I'd like for us just to see how he prepared the way for the Greek New Testament. And Aristotle, his teacher, gave him a love of Greek culture and learning, Here's a picture of, of Aristotle being lowered in a glass barrel to observe fish. I just thought you'd like to see how he was interested in nature. Uh, this probably never happened. <laughs> but Alexander loved the Greek literature, and everywhere he went, when his generals took over, they continued his policy of using Greek as the official language of the government and high culture. So throughout all the region he conquered, including the Middle East, Greek became a common language. And the Greek that was spoken was what's called Hellenistic Greek, which is the Greek spoken throughout the empire, as opposed to what was called Hellenic Greek, or the Greek spoken by the real Greeks that lived in Greece, sort of like the Americans versus the British English, you know. So when the New Testament was written then, in Greek, that could be understood and read throughout the areas that these rulers ruled, unlike all the other little languages that were everywhere. 
we read in the book of Acts how when Paul went from place to place, there were different languages here, and then go a couple towns over, they spoke a different language, but they all could speak Greek. Here's a Greek manuscript from that period of time that's been preserved 2,000 years old using that type of Hellenistic Greek. And, of course, the Greek New Testament that we have and, and uh, that we rely upon as the Word of God is written in that same language. So I've got some students here that could read this. Uh, it's wonderful to see how even today we can study the very words that God inspired. So God's sovereign, and he used Alexander just as he uses other world leaders to accomplish his purposes, to spread his word, to build up his church, and to make the lasting changes in the world that these great rulers have no idea about. So uh, let's have a word of prayer. No, I didn't ask any questions. Let's, any last-minute question? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study the Word of God, and we thank you for how you have uh, provided in history these various uh, people who had such great power and influence and ruled, and, and uh, the fates of millions of people depended upon them. And yet, uh, the, the most humble Christian, the most unknown Christian, is more precious in your sight. And that you do these great things in the world for the good and, and the furtherance of your gospel and your church. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your providence and care. We pray that we'll rely upon you in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.